Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folta. And welcome to the Talking Biotech podcast. It's the podcast where we talk about issues in medicine and agriculture with an emphasis on biotechnology and how these technologies can help people and the planet. My name is Kevin Fulta and today we have an opportunity to discuss one of the topics that kind of travels hand in hand with the issue of genetic engineering of crop plants. Many of the crop plants that are out there are engineered with resistance to an herbicide. And the herbicide is glyphosate. It's sometimes thought of as, well, branded as Roundup, which is a combination of the glyphosate chemical plus a surfactant to help it penetrate the plant's uh, outer leaves and actually get into the cellular compartments where it does its job. And today I wanted to discuss the human health aspect of glyphosate because the chemical has found a lot of uh, attention lately, particularly in this area. And today we'll talk with an expert in this particular area. We're going to be speaking with Dr. Len Ritter. He's a professor emeritus in the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of Guelph and a fellow of the Academy of Toxicological Sciences. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ritter. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So I'd I'd really like to uh, start out by just giving the audience a little bit of background to get on the same page about what is this stuff. So what is yeah. this chemical called glyphosate? Well, glyphosate is a herbicide, as you've already indicated, and so it's used to control uh, plant growth, unwanted vegetation, so on and so forth. It was first developed in the mid-'70s by Monsanto in the United States and entered into commercial registrations shortly thereafter, uh, both in Canada and the United States. So it's been in use about 40 or 41 years. and. Uh, that long period of use is how we can derive some of the information that's been in the public domain now for a while and has been discussed and debated really around the world. Glyphosate acts by interfering with the shikimic acid pathway, which as um, we probably are aware is a pathway which is unique to plants. And so from first instance, it, it kind of attracts our attention because it's not a pathway that, it's not a pathway which is common to mammals, you and I, for example, but really one that's restricted to plants. It interferes with this particular pathway, and that's how it exercises its 
herbicidal activity. So uh, we've then can draw on 40 years, 41 years plus of experience with glyphosate on an international scale. It's the most widely used herbicide in the world. It's registered for use in about 100 countries, and it's permitted for use on about 100, and there are tolerances for about 120 food crops. So lots and lots of experience with this chemical across a very long period of time. And uh, the way in which it works, when we talk about the shikimate pathway, um, can you give us a little bit more of an idea about the pathway and maybe the precise mechanism of action? Yeah, so I'm not a plant biologist, so if I fumble here, you'll have to forgive me. But my understanding is that it interferes, as I mentioned, with the shikimic acid pathway, which is, I think, the way plants make aromatic amino acids. Uh, mammals don't use that mechanism, so as I mentioned earlier, it's unique to plant species. Yeah, you got it, and I, I, I didn't mean to throw you a, a strange question there as much as it is really emphasize and underscore the idea that it inhibits, it binds into a specific enzyme that then loses its ability to do its job. And, right, and so, I think it, it, is the, it is the aromatic amino acids, is it not? That's the idea, is that when this enzyme is bound with glyphosate, it can't do what it needs to do, and aromatic amino acids are parts of proteins that are required for normal catalysis as well as structure within the cell, so the plant can't survive. When we talk about glyphosate safety, now you mentioned it's had 41 years of use, but what about 41 years of safety assessments? What do those tell us? So over the 41-year period, glyphosate has now been reviewed by virtually every major regulatory jurisdiction on Earth, including some of the largest ones in existence. and so. Uh, in many cases, it's been reviewed multiple times, and this is part of the cyclical reevaluation process that many countries have in place. So, bearing in mind that I mentioned to you that it was first registered in the United States around 1975, and Canada at approximately the same time, the US EPA undertook its first major reevaluation as part of its usual reevaluation cycle, looked at glyphosate for the first time in 1993, so about 18 years after it was first registered. And the U.S. and Canada and many other countries around the world go through this cyclical reevaluation process for all pesticides to ensure that there isn't new information that becomes available from the time that it was first registered and the time that the reevaluation is taking place. In other words, we want to be sure that there isn't information that ought to be brought to bear on the continuing registration. What if there's a study which demonstrates an adverse health effect which wasn't known when it was first registered but has become known since that time? So the cyclical reevaluation process is the way in which government regulatory agencies can ensure that the safety is monitored on an ongoing basis. So EPA looked at it first in 1993, and since that time it's been reviewed by the World Health Organization, by the Joint Expert Committee on Pesticide Residues of the World Health Organization, by Health Canada's Pest Management Regulatory Agency, by the European Union, by the regulatory authorities in Germany, who carried out another review on behalf of the European Union, the European Food Safety Authority, and so the list goes on in many individual countries. But these are the major regulatory jurisdictions. And the conclusion has been pretty much unanimous up until March of 2015. Up until March 2015, when all of these regulatory agencies looked at it around the world, and these are all neutral government agencies. I'm not, I'm not referring to anything that's been conducted by industry or on behalf of industry. This is all government regulatory agency work. Uh, and they all came to a similar conclusion, as I mentioned, the conclusion being largely that uh, this chemical doesn't pose a risk of cancer to users or to consumers in really any significant way at all. Uh, in March 2015, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is itself 
a branch, an arm, if you like, of the World Health Organization, undertook a, uh, an evaluation of the safety of glyphosate with regard to cancer. As you can imagine, the International Cancer Agency focuses entirely on cancer outcomes for their mandate. Took a look at the uh, data available uh, available to them on glyphosate and concluded that it is a probable human carcinogen. That's a specific jargon which uh, IARCHES, the International Cancer Agency, uses. And it's their second highest category of classification. The only category that's higher or more hazardous, if you like, is something that they designate as a known human carcinogen. And that would include things like tobacco smoke, for example. So this, this really took the world by surprise, both the regulated, the regulated industrial world, the user community, and really all of us, because it had been in use for so long uh, at the time that IARC decided to take it on, as I mentioned to you, about 40 years or so, and had been reviewed by every major regulatory jurisdiction, all of which came to a really different conclusion than the conclusion that IARC reached in 2015. And so since then, uh, many jurisdictions have been reevaluating again to make sure that they didn't miss something. And by and large, the conclusions remain pretty much what they were when IARC published its findings in March 2015. IARC stands by its conclusion, as do the regulatory agencies, that it does not pose a risk. Well, what are some of the other compounds or um, hazards that IARC describes as a probable carcinogen? Well, for example, they looked uh, after the glyphosate evaluation, they looked both at uh, red meat and they looked at processed meat, cured meat. They designated red meat as a probable human carcinogen and designated cured meats, uh, like smoked meats or bacon, uh, cured meats in general, as a known human carcinogen. So that would give you um, kind of a sense of where some of these evaluations have come down. And they've published now, I think somewhere in the range of about uh, 500 different evaluations of different substances. And they range from things like tobacco smoke to cured meats to uh, several different pesticide products to industrial solvents really quite a gamut of different types of chemicals and different types of applications. Glyphosate was done in March 2015. Uh, the one that I referred to with processed red meat and uh, fresh red meat, or I should say, um, yeah, processed red meat and red meats in general, so that was done shortly after, but six or eight months after they published the findings on glyphosate. And if you look really carefully at how they devised their opinion, this is the IARC. It's, a, as you mentioned, an arm of the WHO. You would think yeah. that there would be some scientific rigor in here that would lead them to that conclusion. So what exactly did they observe, or what was different that they saw that the rest of the world never noticed? Well, that's a good question, and that's a question that many of the regulatory agencies ask themselves immediately after the IARC publication was issued, the IARC uh, opinion was issued. And so it, it seemed that there were one or two possibilities of how IR could have come to such a different conclusion than the rest of the world and still have the whole thing make sense. And so IARC is really focused on published data, uh, data that appears in the open published literature. They generally do not accept confidential proprietary studies for evaluation, uh, whereas the WHO reviews and the government reviews that I talked about a moment ago, all the government reviews that have been done all over the world, including those done by the European Food Safety Authority, uh, generally have a significant component of, of confidential studies that have been submitted in support of the safety of a particular chemical. So the thought that emerged was that, is it possible that this difference in conclusion could be attributable to a different data set? Could it be that IARC actually looked at data that were different than the data that would have been reviewed by the regulatory agencies? Because one looks primarily at published data, and the other looks uh, at published data, but also includes a significant 
volume of proprietary confidential data. So WHO, to try to address that particular concern, WHO convened a, a special working panel which met in May of 2016. And the charge to the panel was to reevaluate glyphosate uh, that had been done previously by WHO, but this time to ensure that they included everything that was available, both pr proprietary and, and published, and most notably to make sure that they include the information that IARC specifically is focused on during their evaluation. And so that panel met in May 2016 and published their findings, or at least an interim conclusion of their findings, very quickly thereafter, I think within about two or three weeks after the meeting was convened in Geneva. And um, their conclusions were very clear. Again, they, they really uh, stuck by the opinion that they had issued previously. So the special joint expert meeting on pesticide residues of the World Health Organization concluded in this special evaluation that the use of the glyphosate herbicide did not pose a risk to consumers. So we, they were again reaffirming the conclusion that they had reached earlier. So we were really at a point where we continue to not entirely understand why the IARC position is so different from the position reached by virtually every regulatory agency on earth that's ever reviewed the chemical. I, I say virtually because there are a couple. I think France, on the basis of uh, the IARC position, has moved to try to regulate or to restrict the use or to ban the use entirely of glyphosate within France. But there are really very, very few jurisdictions that have taken that kind of a position. Most of the jurisdictions have relied on the conclusions reached by the European community, by the European Food Safety Authority, by the Pest Management Regulatory Agency in Canada, by the US EPA. In fact, the US EPA Carcinogen Assessment Group is one of the many groups that evaluated the safety of glyphosate. They did this in um, September 2016, so a little less than a year ago. And they too concluded in their paper entitled The Evaluation of the Carcinogenic Potential of Glyphosate that glyphosate really did not pose a cancer risk. So we have IARC on one side of the debate, uh, concluding that it is a probable human carcinogen. And again, we need to remind ourselves that this is the second highest categorization which IARC can make, uh, second uh, most hazardous categorization that IARC can make, if you like, uh, whereas everybody else, including the EPA's most recent position in September 2016, has been that it doesn't pose a risk. Now, when one looks at this a little more closely and really tries to come to some sort of an understanding of how this can be, there may be the possibility of another explanation. IARC is what we refer to primarily as a hazard-based organization. What we mean by that is that IARC evaluates the possibility that something can cause cancer, not the probability. And I, I don't want to sound like, I don't want to make this sound like double talk, but they're really evaluating if there is a theoretical set of circumstances under which a chemical is capable of causing cancer. So the example that I often use in my class to help my students understand what that really means is if I say tobacco smoke to the average person, I think the average person would immediately react by saying it's a carcinogen. And of course it is. There are many carcinogens in tobacco smoke. But I also then put the question to my class. I say, well, what's the best way to ensure that you don't personally experience a cancer risk from tobacco smoke? And the answer is don't smoke. So, whereas tobacco smoke, in theory, can cause cancer, whether or not it actually poses a risk of causing cancer is a function of one's exposure. And obviously, the less you smoke, the lower your risk. And if you don't smoke at all, you don't have any risk at all from tobacco smoke. And so, the world, I think, began to wonder, is it possible that the difference in conclusion between what IARC reached and the rest of the world, could that be because of the difference in the way they evaluate exposure? And the Pest Management Regulatory Agency, for example, in Canada, had concluded that that was exactly the reason 
why IR can reach a different position than the rest of the world on the safety of glyphosate because the regulatory agencies have very carefully considered the extent to which you and I are exposed in daily life to glyphosate residues, whereas IARC probably didn't really focus too extensively on the component of exposure, but rather look more at the hazard of glyphosate. Are there a set of circumstances, in theory at least, where glyphosate could pose a cancer hazard? And so the, the, um, the, the framework in which the evaluation is done is fundamentally different between IARC and the regulatory agencies around the world. Now, that's a really great point, and I, I love your analogy of cigarette smoke because it's much more elegant than the ones I use. I, When I talk about hazards versus risk, I usually talk about meteors and meteorites. You know. Yeah, I like to use one that people can instantly relate to. Yeah, no. And, of course, well, given that this is 2017, um, there isn't anybody alive who doesn't understand that tobacco smoke poses a significant risk if you smoke. But yeah. if you don't... It doesn't really pose any risk at all. And, of course, that's why public health agencies have, for the last 35 or 40 years, focused on, uh, I mean, all of the campaigns have been focused on trying to reduce your exposure to tobacco smoke. You know, your secondhand smoke has now got significant legislation. You can think of many examples of what I'm referring to, but it's an example that immediately has relevance to most people in the audience. And so feel free to use it. That sounds great. Now, it makes much more sense. Let's take a break here, and then we'll come back on the other side and touch on a few more nuances of this current discussion. Um, This is the Talking Biotech Podcast with Dr. Len Ritter from University of Guelph. We'll be back in just a moment. If you've been reading on the Internet lately, you know that the question has been raised about how the Talking Biotech Podcast is funded. I can see why. I mean, this would come up again and again a high-quality, professionally-produced podcast like this must depend on deep pockets from some major agricultural concern. I'm not sure they're getting your sarcasm on that. Well, I, I certainly can vouch for the fact that this is a volunteer effort. As the booth announcer for the Talking Biotech podcast, I get a lousy cup of coffee and my pick of the donuts from the box that Kevin doesn't want. That's it. But that's okay. This enterprise is not about making a buck. It's about sharing science. The podcast is 100% funded by Folda personally. And no outside funding is considered. Go ahead. Try us. Send us a check for a million dollars and see if you don't get it right back. The real payment for the effort is the flood of kind words. The growing numbers of downloads and the great questions that we get from listeners like you. Thank you for listening, and now back to the podcast. And we're back in the Talking Biotech podcast with with Dr. Len Ritter. He's a professor emeritus at the School of Environmental Sciences at the University of Guelph. And um, we're talking about glyphosate and the toxicity, relative toxicity and cancer risk of glyphosate. So when we're looking at how this has been portrayed in the popular press and in websites, things like that, people will say this uh, thing that has been deemed a probable carcinogen is probably carcinogenic. And is that really uh, a distortion of the facts in this case? Well, I think think it's perhaps because it's it's difficult, I think, for the average person to understand the the fine nuances that IARC uses in the classifications that they do. 
And so I think um, because of that, for example, if I take a look at um, any one of the volumes that IARC publishes, uh, and they publish the, these particular reviews are carried out in what IARC refers to as the monograph series. And there's over 100 volumes now in the monograph series. So you take a look at the monograph series um, in general, there, there's a preamble to all of them. And I think IARC has said it itself, and I'm just, I'm just going to, um, um, I just, I think it would be helpful if I just read these. I'm just sure. going to read to you preamble. The monographs are an exercise in evaluating cancer hazards, despite the historical presence of the word risk in the title. The distinction between hazard and risk is important, and the monographs identify cancer hazards even when risks are very low at current exposure levels, because new uses or unforeseen exposures could engender risks and it's significantly higher. Carcinogenic hazard identification refers to an assessment of whether an agent causes cancer. Hazard identification does not predict the magnitude of the cancer risk under specific conditions. This can be determined only with appropriate exposure response information. So, yeah. you know, this is a difficult concept, I think, for scientists to understand, never mind the average person. So given the stature that the, even the average well-informed person, so given the stature that IRC has, and I think we have to recognize that it is probably the most widely respected cancer research, cancer prevention organization in the world. It's been around since 1965. It celebrated its 50th anniversary in 2015. And so when IARC speaks, I think it's fair to say the world uh, listens, and we see that. That's exactly what's happened in the glyphosate situation. And so, you know, I don't know if it's a misrepresentation or if it's a failure to adequately explain what their conclusions actually mean. And I, I think if they did a better job of explaining what they've actually concluded, because in the moment I think the average person here is probable carcinogen, or even some government agencies hear the word probable carcinogen, and again, I have to repeat, the second highest categorization that they can conclude is a 2A. The only thing that's higher is a 1, which is a non-human carcinogen. I think that makes people stand up and take notice. I think it's reasonable to expect that that will be noticed. Uh, and as I say, I, I don't know that I would go so far as to say that it's a deliberate misrepresentation or even a misrepresentation, but it's certainly a failure to adequately communicate what that means, what the science of that actually means, that conclusion, and the failure to adequately recognize or the, the lack of adequate characterization of exposure in these assessments, I think, is what can lead to that um, misunderstanding, if you like. And I guess along that same line, as a toxicologist, when you look at something like glyphosate, is it um, what are we looking at in terms of relative toxicity? If you were to compare it to say other compounds that we may understand better, yeah. So, so it depends. You know, toxicity comes in many different flavors, and so there is a tendency, I think, in simple-minded people to to uh, gauge toxicity on the basis of acute toxicity, that is single exposures, and if you do that. Uh, glyphosate would rank very, very, very low. It is, for all practical purposes, non-toxic. It doesn't meet the threshold to meet the legal definition of toxic uh, at all. So in that, in that case, it's, it's an entirely non-toxic compound. But I think, appropriately, uh, we tend to be in the realm of toxicology. We tend to be more concerned with chronic ongoing exposure than we are with short-term uh, acute exposure, which may only be a single shot. And the reason I say that is because, for example, Glyphosate is very widely used on food crops, so it's reasonable to expect that the exposure that you and I will experience will be on an ongoing chronic basis over a lifetime. That may be true for farmers who apply it as well, because they may be applying it year after year. So we're more concerned, I think, with 
chronic exposures, lifelong exposures, particularly for chemicals that will leave a residue on food, than we are with very, very short-term exposures where you may only be exposed to the chemical once or twice in your life for a relatively short period of time. These are the studies, the chronic studies, the ones that look at glyphosate exposure over a lifetime, are the ones which attract a great deal of attention from the regulatory agencies when they review the safety of a compound like glyphosate and when they re-review it periodically over the life of the compound in commerce. Because this is where we're most interested in the potential adverse outcome in human populations. This is where these agencies have all concluded almost unanimously that glyphosate simply does not pose a risk of harm. Now, I'm glad you brought that up because the acute versus the chronic, um, I tend to focus on the acute when I have these discussions. And, you know, just the fact that you um, mentioned here that that is kind of a simple-minded approach. Um, and the reason I always took that was because I think I understand the, the pharmacology of this compound and the way it's uh, broken down, the kinetics in which it's removed from the body. And so chronic exposure also has that exit strategy that we have to factor in as well. And do we know anything about... Is, is there any evidence of accumulation or anything like that? That uh, No, there, there, there isn't. In fact, one could have argued from first principles that it, it doesn't really pose a, um, a chronic risk or a chronic hazard even in the pharmacological sense because, as you point out, if one looks at that particular aspect, that component of it, in the pharmacology, uh, the, the, um, the, the absorption, distribution, and excretion would be uh, fundamental features that we would look at when evaluating the safety of any, any chemical, including glyphosate, it does not bioaccumulate at all. It is excreted, it's turned over, metabolized, turned over, excreted very rapidly into very simple components. Glyphosate is not a complicated compound, as you know. Mm-hmm. It's really quite a simple compound, and it's broken down relatively quickly, particularly in the animal body. So uh, despite the fact that there have been hundreds and hundreds of studies that have been published on various aspects of glyphosate safety over the years, there is really no evidence at all that it accumulates any significance. Uh, so, Dr. Len Ritter, thank you very much for uh, joining me today on the Talking Biotech Podcast. This is a really important topic, and I really appreciate your expertise. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.